And so one of the core purposes of the church for us here at Rimrock is to be goers to, and descend. And so not only to Paris and around the world, but also right here in Rapid City, we need to go. And so Evan Hayes is here. I've been anticipating this morning because this has been a work of God's spirit preparing, I believe, us for this time. And uh, Evan Hayes is going to be preaching out of Romans here. But I just want to share, I, I believe God is, is calling us to, to reach and to share the message of Jesus with others right here in Rapid City. About six years ago, uh, a small group of people began to meet downtown Rapid City, and they were uh, not totally sure what God was doing, but He was doing something, and they were worshiping, and they were sharing Jesus, and the community was being born, and Evan was part of that from the beginning, and, and Pastor Steve had a, had a vision for that work to grow, and he had approached Evan to maybe consider a more pastoral role, but it, it, the time just wasn't quite right. But I, I believe now is the time, and God has been stirring in Evan, he's been stirring in the group downtown, and, and we believe God is, is calling Evan into a pastoral role to work with the downtown group to continue to disciple and to share the name of Jesus with others. Now, for me, uh, coming here for the last few months, it's been really special to see how God has been working in Evan's life, and I, I just, I love this brother, I love his passion for Jesus, his desire to see others come to know Jesus, and I believe there's a pastoral call in his life. Our vision is that downtown will be part of Rimrock. So we're going to be one church, but we're going to have two sites. And, and there's going to be freedom for the downtown group to, to pursue uh, God and to pursue the work of God at Rapid City in a different way maybe than up here, but we're going to be one church. So one church, two sites. Would you just join me in praying? Uh, we're going to be voting end of Jan uh, July to, uh, to adopt our budget. And part of that is inviting Evan to be a pastor, to serve the downtown group as a pastor. And so, congregation, you get to be part of that decision. We're going to trust the Holy Spirit is going to confirm that through all of us as we seek God together. Would you join me in praying? Lord, you are amazing God. Thank you. Thank you for chasing us and pursuing us, Lord, even when we were so far from you. Thank you for speaking to us. Your word is powerful, Lord. It awakens life in us. Lord, we just come this morning hungry to hear. Use Evan as he proclaims your word from Romans 7 this morning. God, we just pray for Evan and, and Roz as they take this step, Lord, and as a church as we seek you for your will, that God, you would just confirm and direct. And Lord, we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Thanks, Ben. Those are kind words. You know, over the last three times, this is the third time that Ben has introduced me. It's been made apparent to me that I'm not a politician or a knight in shining armor. It's really uncomfortable for me when a minstrel or a speaker announces my arrival. It just makes me kind of blush inside a little bit. Oh, wonderful. Well, I've been given the privilege of continuing to walk us through Romans, and we're going to look at 25 verses, the entire chapter of Romans 7 in the next 30 minutes. And it's a deep, powerful, thought-provoking passage. And so I'm not going to talk at all about my vision uh, of Rimrock Downtown. I spent 20, 30 minutes last night at Rimrock Downtown kind of presenting my thoughts of where I think God is calling it. And so if you want to know about that, come up and talk to me. Uh, also, it'll be posted on our website come Thursday. Um, but we're just going to dig into this goodness that we have right here in front of us. 
Now, because it's such a huge passage, my desire is to do a general overview of it, kind of like a helicopter approach. Instead of like an infantry approach, verse by verse, I'm gonna try to give you two big pictures to understand Romans chapter seven. And in doing this, I hope that you then go home and spend some time digging into this, reading it, thinking about it, applying to your life. Because right, in this, we see Paul being fully transparent about his personal struggle with sin, which is a really neat thing to just engage in with your own mind and then apply to your own life. All right, before we hop into the verses, I want to give you kind of a summary statement. If nothing else, I hope you walk away understanding this, that there is always a war that wages within us, a war between good and evil. From the day that we are born until the day we die, we are constantly fighting a battle within our own minds. It doesn't matter how good a person is or how long they have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they are always in the midst of warfare, struggling to choose good over evil, selflessness over selfishness, love over hate. Prior to understanding the gospel of Jesus and crying out for God's grace to be poured out, a person is fighting a battle they cannot win. After one is redeemed by their faith in Jesus, they are fighting a battle they cannot lose. All right, so Ben's kind of started a tradition that when we read the Bible, we can stand out of respect. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me, we're going to look at Romans 7, verses 1 through 13. I broke it up so that way you guys don't get too tired standing. Don't want to wear you out yet. All right. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only during the person's lifetime? Thus a married woman is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if he dies, she is discharged from the law concerning the husband. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. In the same way, my friends, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. While we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we are, not, we are slaves not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. What then should we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But in my sin, but sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means, it was sin, working death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. All right, go ahead and take a break, sit down. That was nice and straightforward, right? So uh, 
Basically, from what I've figured out, this is the gospel. Just as simple as, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. My desire as we walk through these verses is for you to see that as well. But it's going to take far more than the next 15, 20 minutes. It's going to take your willingness to dig into it onto your own. All right. So what we're going to do is look at the two different battles that we face. Verses 1 through 13 is the battle pre-salvation before one is saved by the blood of Jesus. So prior to Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, you can read about in Acts 9, he was a man fully dedicated to his interpretation of the law. The law was given by God through Moses to the Israelites in order to show them how to properly live individually and operate as a nation. It's the creator showing his creation how to live a life full of abundance. That's why Paul says what he says in verse 12. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy and just and good. Do not lose sight of that. Three to 400 years before Jesus' time, a group called the Pharisees was created. I know you've heard that term before. The goal of the Pharisees was to passionately keep God's law for his people so that the Israelites would not once again be exiled like they were into Babylon. Now, Paul was a Pharisee one who took an extremely zealous stance on the law and the passions of the Pharisees. Now, if the law is from God and is holy and just and good, why does Paul, a man who fervently lived by the law, say that it was a catalyst for sin and death in his life? Verses 9 through 11. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me, and through it, through the law, killed me. How can what is good produce what is evil? In my opinion, it is because of the way human nature reacts to God's perfect plan. Let me take some time to explain this. Every human has two internal influences, reason and desire, our conscience and our heart or our gut. Through our conscience, we understand the importance of loving others, being kind and generous, being patient, working hard, practicing self-control, those virtues in which we are built with. But through our desire, we see the importance of doing what is best for us, of being impulsive and reactive, of doing what we need to do to feel satisfied in the moment. Prior to one's encounter with Jesus, this is the reality of who we are. Both parts are very real because both parts are us. It's a deeper concept, but it's an important one for you to think about. God made mankind in his image which in my opinion means that we are built with a moral compass that leads us, to, leads us how to live, how we are designed to live. Loving God, loving others. It's just instilled within us. That's why the Ten Commandments were accepted across the board, regardless of if somebody was a Christian or not, because everybody knew that this is right. But when mankind rebelled against God, what the Bible refers to as the flesh entered the picture. Flesh is our desire to be our own gods to do what we think is best for us in the moment, regardless of anything else. 
So every man and woman born after the fall is heavily influenced by both sides of their being, their moral code given by God and the guidance, the influence of our flesh, our selfish desires. Now this is Paul, his name was actually Saul, but this is Paul prior to his life-changing salvation. And this is why the law caused such problems in his life. Now Paul was operating out of his God-given conscience and he knew how important it was to live up to God's standards. He knew that this was the way that people were created to live. That's why he loved the law the way he did. But over time, due to his flesh, his passion and zeal for the law devolved into a way to elevate himself and judge and condemn those who did not live up to the law's standards. Paul specifically mentions coveting being his own personal struggle. We see this in verse seven. I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now, covet is defined as a desire or a passionate longing. And if I was to ask you what it means to covet, most of us would just see it as wanting what our neighbor has, like their car or their couch or their poodle or right, whatever is so shiny and pretty and fluffy. Right? This is coveting. However, coveting goes so much deeper than this. Coveting is what lies at the heart of all sin. We desire or passionately long to do things our way, not God's way. We covet having control of our lives and being the one to define what is good. Now, Paul's pursuit of righteousness, of doing what is good, of being an upstanding citizen by keeping the law, was a form of coveting. Through his religiosity, keeping rules, holding those rules to other people, he was taking control of his own life, determining what was good and judging those who did not live up to his standard. He would take pride in his own actions and condemn those who did not do what he said was right. Through the law, Paul discovered that his pursuit of holiness was built on his sinful nature. God's word revealed to Paul that much of the good that he thought he was doing, he was doing out of his own desire for self-glorification. Now, did God's law bring that to his life? No, it simply made the sin obvious. We see this in verse 13. Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, his selfishness, his flesh, working death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure, or beyond what I could deny. Now it's interesting because I believe that Paul's flesh was aggravated by this epiphany by his sin being made so blatantly obvious. Instead of submitting to the truth of the law, it fought back against it. We see this in verse eight. But sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Now the flesh wants in no way, shape, or form to yield to God's authority, and so it uses the commandments to produce a rebellious nature within us, one that passionately states, I know what is right. I know what is good for me. How could a dusty book or a distant God know better what's, what's better for my life than I could? 
And we see this in verse 11. For sin, seizing an opportunity in the commandment, deceived me. And through it, through what was good, killed me. Shows the power of sin, the power of our flesh to deceive us and trick us. You know, let's move into some direct application. Prior to our lives being changed by Jesus, we fight this same battle. Just like Paul, we are influenced by both our God-given moral compass and our flesh. That battle is within us. We know it is wrong to steal, murder, commit adultery, lie, get angry, have sexual desires for somebody other than your spouse, yell at your kids, want what's pretty and shiny thinking that that'll make you happy. And we do everything we can to not do these wrong things. But alongside of our understanding of what is right is our desire for satisfaction in the moment. It encourages us to do what feels good in the moment, in the here and now. And it takes on so many different forms. It might be seeking pleasure. Drugs, alcohol, sex might be pointing out another's wrong. Might be yelling at a disobedient child, bragging about what you are good at, your own worth. It might be spending your money on pretty things instead of giving it to people that are in need. Our desire to be satisfied guides us into living life based on what is best for us. And this is what our culture is continually teaching us. Whatever is, feels good for you is right. Do what is true for you because that is truth. And we continually fight this battle between doing what is right versus doing what feels right for us in the moment. And this is a battle that we can never win because it is between two parts of who we are. Both reason and desire make up who you are. Both speak truth into our minds and hearts. Both our conscience and our heart influence the choices we make and the lives we live. When the flesh still reigns in a person, it will tirelessly and cunningly deceive one into believing that they know what is best for their own lives. You know, we've been walking through Romans and studying chapter six the last couple weeks. We learn that we are born sin, slaves to sin. Think about that. From the beginning, slaves bound to sin, slaves to our flesh, to our selfishness. And the only way that we can be set free is through death. Death to our own desires. Death to our dependency upon self. Death to the flesh only occurs when we willingly submit to God's authority over our lives and cry out for salvation. Out of this cry, we are united with Christ. Romans 6, 6 through 7. We know that our old self, our flesh, right, our heart, our gut, was crucified with him that the body, so that the body of sin might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is free from sin. In this new state of being, we have been given a new heart and the flesh no longer reigns. The innermost part of who we are is transformed and literally filled with God himself. I still can't even come close to comprehending that. 
Instead of only being influenced by our conscience and our desires, we are now heavily influenced by the Spirit, and that has far more of an impact than we will ever know. But this side of heaven, we are still in a battle. But this battle is one that we cannot lose. Now, this is really interesting for me, and I'm a bit of a Bible nerd. I used to be an English teacher. But Romans 7, 7 through 13 that we just explored, Paul's wrestling with covetousness and the sin that produced through the law, like death, was all written in the past tense. All the verbs point to the past. It means that he was speaking about a battle that he fought prior to his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Verses 14 through 25 that we're going to explore now are all in the present tense. It's Paul talking about the battle that he fights after his redemption. So I can see you guys are getting lazy. Let's stand one more time. Read through the remaining passages. Don't worry, it's only 11 verses this time. They'll start in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into slavery under sin. I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree the law is good. But in fact, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good comes within me, dwells within me, that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I am a slave to the law of sin, but with my flesh, I am a slave. Excuse me, with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God. Important. But with my mind, I'm a f- slave to the law of sin. All right, go ahead and take a rest. So we'll just spend a little time exploring this other battle. First battle, pre salvation cannot win. Second battle, post salvation is one that you cannot lose. So even after receiving a new heart and being inhabited by the Spirit of God, Paul finds that he cannot do what he wants to do, and he does what he does not want to do. Do you ever experience this? You desire deep within your heart to do what God wants you to do. You know it's the best way for you to live. You don't want to get angry at your kids or your spouse. You don't want to drink one too many. You don't want to look at naked pictures on your phone or gossip about somebody in your small group, but you still do. And so did the Apostle Paul. Think about that. A man whose life was completely dedicated to God. A man who was described and defined as a saint. And so do I. 
You know, I got endless examples of endless ways in which I still battle with my flesh, both big and small. But the most persistent struggle that I've experienced in my adulthood is one of partying. From the age of 15 to 28, I'm 36 now, I was addicted to smoking weed. Partying was my priority. It was my God. I enjoyed drinking too much. I enjoyed being a pothead. I was spiritually saved when I was young. And there's a lot of different times in my life where I knew the Spirit was working within me. He was still, he was very much alive. But I was unable to remain constant in following God's commands and to stay sober. You know, I led youth groups, small groups. I did everything I could to focus on God, but I still could not win this battle. You know, as I look around, I see people that knew me when I was a kid. I see some people I went to high school with. There's stories abound, I'm sure. Let's go back to Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so in verse 21 through 23, he puts it this way. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You know, I knew, as I'm sure you do, how you wanted to live, but were unable to actually live that way over an extended period of time. Be encouraged by this. Not the fact that a person applying to be a pastor used to be a huge pothead, but be encouraged that the Apostle Paul, myself, and every single Christian in this room is in the midst of a battle in the midst of a fight against all different sorts of sinful tendencies that they just can't seem to fully conquer. Just because you've been saved and internally changed does not mean you have been made perfect. Right? In the eyes of God, you are perfect. Your soul is totally cleansed of all sin. However, in the here and now, as we live life out, we still struggle with sin. But the beauty of it all is that this is a battle that we cannot lose. Our battle pre-salvation was between two equal and true parts of ourselves, our reason and our desire. The battle post-salvation is between God himself who lives within you and your preconceived ways of thinking between our new heart, which I believe is the Holy Spirit, and the belief systems that were formed over years or decades of faulty living. Let me explain this to you a little bit more. When a person dies to themselves and trusts Jesus to save them from their brokenness, their internal makeup is changed. Instead of being spiritually dead due to the consequences of their sin, they become spiritually alive through Jesus' atonement. When we are saved, our innermost being, our heart, the core of who we are, out of which our thoughts and emotions and reason stem, that is made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 sums it up so well. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. That's talking about you if you're saved. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new spiritually. It's incredible. 
but our minds have been saturated with fleshly ways of thinking and our belief systems have been formed around our desire to be in charge of our own lives. Out of belief systems and ways of seeing the world, we act. Much of our struggle with our sinful tendencies is due to habits of selfish living that we created and that are reinforced and encouraged by our culture. But in this new state of being, we have God continually interacting with our mind and our emotions, guiding us away from sin and heartache and leading us towards life. Instead of having to choose between two parts of ourselves, our conscience or our heart, our desire, we now choose between the goodness that God sets before us or the old destructive ways of thinking and living. And this is why this is a battle that we cannot lose. Because God is far more powerful than our deceived ways of thinking. God is far more persistent than our sin. Think about that song we sing. There's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up coming after me. Right? There's no wall you won't break down, no lie you won't tear down coming after me. The overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God who leaves the 99 to come after you. You know, Paul puts it this way in verses 24 and 25. He's wrestling with this concept. Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ, Jesus Christ our Lord. When you cry out for salvation, you are fully reconciled to the one that made you. Regardless of how many foolish choices you are making, have made, will continue to make, your relationship with God does not waver. That's illogical, but it's what the truth I see from cover to cover of the Bible. You know, Ben's going to go into Romans 8 next week, but this is a really important uh, kind of ending point for Romans 7. So Paul's looking at everything that he battles with, all of the stuff that he does that he does not want to do, and then he says, but because I have Jesus Christ, I am made new. Therefore, because I have Jesus Christ, even though I'm in the midst of all of this struggle and all of this sin, because I have Jesus Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have Jesus, there is no condemnation regardless of how low you go, how dirty it gets, how many people you hurt. Your relationship with God does not waver. And this is why it's a battle that we cannot lose. In this battle, God is continually giving you support and guidance. He is bringing thoughts, words, and people into your life to keep you focused on what is holy and just and good. The Spirit is constantly giving you chances to reform your broken ways of thinking into truth. In this battle, you have God himself on your side. So to continue with my story, you know, during those 13 years where I, my God was partying, the Spirit was still very much working within me. You know, I got a lot of different instances where I just felt Him directing me. You know, but when I was 28, I finally decided to listen. I finally decided to, you know what, 
This is not good for me. God, the one who made me knows better ways. I'm going to give him a chance. And by doing that, God utterly changed my life. You know, over an intense time period of prayer and fasting, my addiction was gone. And the years that followed that, God and the Spirit grabbed a hold of my mind, kind of like a potter in the clay, and he slowly reshaped my ways of thinking and my belief systems. Where I used to believe that this life is all about pleasure and having fun and doing what I want to do, he changed that. He reshaped it into believing that I was created for a purpose, that he made me for specific reasons, and the only way that I'm going to live this life well is if I follow the one who made me. Because those belief systems were shifted and changed, those habits that I had developed fell away. It took time, but it changed my actions because it changed my belief systems. He's doing the same thing in you. Whether you're saved or not, the Spirit is working in your minds, pulling you to Him comes down to your choice, your willingness to surrender. You know, in the same way that I opened up with a summary, I'm going to kind of end with some closing thoughts. If nothing else, please think about this. Regardless of which battle you face, a battle between the two parts of who you are, or a battle between God and your flesh, death is required. In both battles, you must be willing to die to your own desires and your own control over your life, which is so hard to do. In order to gain victory for your soul, that immortal part of who you are, and truly lasting victory for your life here and now, you must be willing to daily lay down your life. To surrender your thoughts your reasons and logic, your emotions and desires to the one who made you. In whatever battle you are currently in, you are in need of a savior. Without him, you have nothing. With him, you have everything you need for your life. Take a moment if you want to pray with me. Just to Take a chance to tangibly surrender that. God, you created us. You give us life. I just see that you desire to give us a life abundantly, and we know it only comes through you. So right now, just lay down my logic. I lay down my emotions. I lay down my reason. I surrender it to you. I need you. Without you, I am lost and broken. I give you my time, I give you my mind, I give you my life. Do whatever you would desire to do in me, because that is what is good. Thanks for being my Savior, God. Amen.